back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. My name is Drew Cunningham, and I'm a pastor here at Santa Cruz Baptist. And I'm Tyler Hurst. I'm one of the other pastors. And uh, we have been away for several weeks for various reasons. And so today, you are going to get a bonus episode where we talk about not one, not two, but three different chapters and three different sermons on the book of Daniel. Um, So we are excited to be back in the saddle again, and um, we are going to be discussing the first three chapters of Daniel. And so just to kind of kick us off, um, chapter one of Daniel is a a sermon I preached three weeks ago, and I'm just going to give you kind of a a rundown of what the chapter is about, and then a couple of things that I hope that people walked away from the sermon with. And then we'll proceed to chapters two and three. So in in chapter one of Daniel, um, what we find out is that um, God's people have been carried away in captivity um, by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And uh, the, the text immediately wants us to be asking the question, has God lost since his people and his things are carried away? Um, by captors. And the the quick answer to that is no. Uh, The the text tells us immediately that um, it was God who gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He's in in control of this thing from the beginning. And so um, we meet Daniel and his three friends, and basically they are in captivity. They are, are brought up into the king's palace, and they are basically offered a education regiment and a food regiment that they are supposed to, to follow um, because Nebuchadnezzar is is making them into be good Babylonians. Um, and so what happens is in the text we see that they ask this guy who's in charge of them if they can forgo eating the food uh, because it would defile them. And so this guy comes back to him and he says, if I let you do that, my head could be in danger. The king could cut off my head if, if you don't do well. So they say, test us for 10 days, see if we're not in good shape or in better shape than the, the other um, youths that are in this program. And so uh, by God's grace, he allows them to do it, and they, they come back, and they are, are in better shape, and they are wiser and more knowledgeable than the other youths in the program. And so... Uh, then they are, are promoted, and um, God is glorified in that. And so that's uh, the gist of, of chapter one, what we see in Daniel. Um, there's some things I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out there, but that's, that's an overview of it. Um, and so if I had to say a couple things that I wanted people to walk away from in that chapter, it's this. Um, the world around us as Christians. Daniel is so relevant to our our current situation. Uh, The world around us, just like the Babylonian world that Nebuchadnezzar is creating, has uh, a plan um, to mold and shape our worldview um, through education, through culture, through, um, yeah, lots of, of different things. And uh, the, the thing that I, I find most fascinating in chapter one that I hope people walked away from uh, the sermon with is we uh, as Christians are called to resist that kind of stuff, um, but to do so humbly. 
Uh, that is something that was abundantly clear to me in walking through this text is that Daniel and his three friends resist, um, but they're, they're not jerks about it. Uh, they ask politely to not eat the food. They ask politely for a 10-day test, um, and they trust God in that, and God is faithful, and he honors them in return. And so um, there are some really fascinating things about how their names are changed and what their names meant before and what their names mean after in the, the first chapter. And so, um, yeah, the, the world wants to change our identity, even in the naming of things. And so as Christians, we, we have to know who we are in Christ. We have to trust God and to move forward humbly. And so I think that's a short overview of what I hope people walked away with. Yeah, if I could add one more thing to that, um, I think one of the things that Daniel 1 does for us is it reminds us of the importance of discerning our current cultural moment. Mm -hmm. Um, We we live and uh, tend to think of times as more or less Christian, and that's not true. Uh, You know, essentially, like, the world, Satan, the flesh are always at war, uh, with God's saints, and they're always seeking to challenge us in some ways. If we think of the world as more Christian, like some people want to re- rewind the clock back to, like, say, um, 1950s or the 1980s or something, where, you know, going to church was uh, was a more culturally prestigious institution, and it was something that was more frequent and more common. Um, well, often one of the things that you see is that during those times, uh, Christians struggled a lot with sort of like false or empty religion, which Jesus critiques all the time in the New Testament. And so it's really about discerning the cultural moment in order to understand what are the idols that we are most likely to take into our hearts, uh, and what are the ways in which Satan, our own flesh, and the world, these three things that in Mark 4, Jesus tells us are the enemies of true discipleship, Mm-hmm. Uh, how are those things trying to derail our faith? And what I see in Daniel 1 is that special and general revelation are necessary in order to understand God's will in any given cultural moment. Yeah, and I think that's something mm-hmm. that that I brought out in the sermon is mm-hmm. that they didn't resist and obey God out of the blue in this moment, mm-hmm. that even by what they're named, what their parents named them, it's very clear that they were discipled well in the faith, um, that they grew up in Christian homes, or mm-hmm. uh, I guess not Christian homes, but they grew up in good Jewish homes at the mm-hmm. time. They were yeah, taught yeah. the scriptures, and they were named things to remind them of, of their identity. Um, and so both that, um, that obedience and resistance in this situation doesn't come out of the blue, it comes mm-hmm. from, as you said, discipleship. Yeah. Um, but also, no matter what time we're in, understanding the truth of, of God's sovereignty. You know, in chapter one, I think three different times this phrase, and God gave, mm-hmm. and God gave, and God gave. Um, Daniel's wanting to remind us that even though it looks like God has lost, that he's really in control of this thing the entire way. And I think that is so key, regardless of what... Yeah what era we're in. Um, like you said, we're, we're under attack from, um, 
what Ephesians says, you know, the, the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yet we have to understand that God is sovereign and he's in control and he has a purpose to what he's doing. Well, and as well, you see it in, in the Daniel is not only one of the central characters of this book, but he's likely the author. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if we weren't covering three sermons in this podcast, we could just go on about, I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 times in the first seven verses that I think he's making explicit references to other texts in scripture. And so he's, I I mean, I think he's essentially Daniel for a young man who came from a culture that was experiencing revival before it was taken off into captivity. Yeah. He's a teenager at this point. He has been saturated with enough scripture to know certain things are important. Like, it's not necessary, just as one example, and you drew this out in your sermon, it's not necessary just to tell us the land of Shinar when you've told us Babylon. That seems like you're essentially repeating yourself. Mm-hmm. But Daniel knows that Shinar is biblically important. Right. And so he knows to stick it in there. And it shows how he's sticking himself close and trying to interpret his times, his places, his cultural moment through special revelation, through the scriptures. Mm-hmm. But So but, let's let's move on to chapter 2, Um you preached the, the second sermon on Daniel 2. Mm-hmm. What, what, give us kind of an overview in a, a box of what, what happens in the chapter and then what you hope people walked away with. Yeah, really quickly, uh, what takes place in Daniel 2 is uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this really terrifying dream. And uh, he calls in this group of people that we can just kind of classify as the wise men, um, and he tells them, essentially, uh, I want you to interpret the dream, and they're all game for it, because that's what they exist for, to interpret things and to, to give wisdom uh, to the king, but the king says, you know, essentially to the effect of, I need to know your interpretation is true and sure, and so rather than me tell you the dream and you interpret it for me, you need to tell me the content of the dream as well. In essence... Man, can you imagine that? Uh, hard hard task. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I mean, one of the points of my sermon was, that is actually not possible. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar says to them to do that, and they go, we can't. And so he says, no, 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 you misunderstood you do it and you get rich. You don't do it and I kill you. Uh, and lo and behold, they tell him again, they can't do that. It's impossible. So he sends out an order for them all to be executed. Included in the execution order is apparently uh, this group of uh, Jews who you covered in your first sermon, Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, um, the the four that got renamed in Daniel chapter one and Daniel responds to the executioner and tells them, uh, well, what, why are you in a hurry? Um, you know, get me an appointment with the King and I'll interpret his dream for him. And then Daniel and his friends pray. Daniel goes to sleep. And then in the night, the dream is revealed to him. And the next day he goes into the King's presence and tells him his dream and tells him what it means. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, falls down, pays homage to Daniel, uh, and gives Daniel and his three friends a promotion. And what I wanted people to take away was not some sort of prosperity gospel, hey, do uh, crazy things for God and you get a promotion, Uh, but rather I wanted people to understand that, one, the wise men were right, that the only way 
for somebody to have access to that kind of information was if they are God or have a special relationship with mm-hmm. God. Daniel gets it through God's revelation to him. But we're going to see that in, in further chapters where right. it's acknowledged that, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar explicitly will say at one point, um, Daniel, who has the spirit of the gods. In right. Him. right, right. Um, and so eventually, like, they're, they're going to acknowledge that. Yeah. And, uh, but one of the things I wanted people to see was that actually what the wise men do is they give us a test to test Jesus himself. Uh, and so we can actually see Jesus' divinity in their words because Jesus constantly throughout the Gospels, and I pulled out and quoted uh, three or four references in my sermon, um, but I cut out a bunch of references in the Gospels where Jesus discerns somebody's thoughts, tells them what they're thinking, knows the internal content of their hearts. These are all the things that would have been put with dreams. And so in order to have access to that kind of thing, you need divine supernatural ability, and Jesus is displaying it. Uh, My second point was that Daniel's faithfulness was not merely something to serve his community, but actually Daniel's faithfulness was broader than the Jewish community and actually served a pagan king and made sure the lives of these wise men uh, were spared as well. And so Daniel's faithfulness to God is actually good for the place in which he lives, which um, which stands with Jeremiah's words that the Babylon, that the exiles in Babylon ought to seek the good of the city. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and in many ways, he's also a, a lot like Joseph mm-hmm. too, right? Who's interpreting yeah. dreams. He's actually saves the life of. Um, one of the, the people in the jail with him mm-hmm. um, who's, who's raised up and then through the interpretation of dreams saves lots of people. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a good argument to be made that Daniel should be thought of sort of a Joseph 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that neither you or I have been able to fit into a sermon yet. Maybe <laughs> we will at some point. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted people to see was that the primary, the primary thing in the text is this message about God's unshakable kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the dream that terrifies Nebuchadnezzar is a dream that symbolically represents these coming kingdoms of great kind of like power and wealth. They're essentially the ancient Near East superpowers, Babylon, Persia, Rome, Greece. Uh, switch those last two, Greece, then Rome. But this tiny little stone is cut out of a hill, falls on the foot of the statue and breaks the entire statue to pieces such that we're told uh, it could be sifted like chaff and it would be blown away, which considering the dream has them made out of metals, you would have to break the metals down into the smallest possible things because metals are obviously heavy, so Mm -hmm. the wind can't blow away Mm -hmm. big chunks of metal. It has to be broken down. So you're talking about complete disintegration, and then that stone expands and expands and expands and expands until it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And Mm -hmm. that stone is the kingdom of God coming through... Uh, Jesus Christ, and particularly his crucifixion, resurrection. Right. So, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, like a tiny stone, being born mm-hmm. as a baby in mm-hmm. a manger. Right. Who changes the entire world? Yes. And whose kingdom will, will last forever? Whose kingdom to this day is still expanding? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, all of that in an Old Testament book called Daniel. Right. It's amazing. <laughs> right. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. So. Uh, kind of moving on so we've had chapter one daniel and his friends resisting 
um, being brainwashed by by Babylon and, and resisting being defiled by Babylon. Chapter two, we've got this interpretation of a dream um, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will not always stand; mm-hmm. that it'll be crushed and, and destroyed by a, a tiny stone, which is the kingdom of God. And then straight into chapter three, all of a sudden we have King Nebuchadnezzar making this image of gold, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, about nine feet in circumference at the bottom and 90 feet high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so but you have to wonder if that's like he gets the inspiration from a terrifying dream in which his kingdom is represented by the head of gold in a giant statue. Oh, bingo. That yeah. was my first point, <laughs> yeah. is that, that that's what's going on in this this chapter, is the dream before it, uh, the head was made of gold, which mm-hmm. represented Nebuchadnezzar. And so he didn't like that interpretation. <laughs> yeah. And so what does he make? He makes a statue not just with a head of gold, but the entire thing's gold, nine mm-hmm. stories high. Mm-hmm. And he's asking people to bow down to it. Yeah. Um, he, he's rejecting the dream right. from chapter two. He's rejecting that his kingdom will fail mm-hmm. and that there's anything more important than him. Mm-hmm. And so he builds this statue nine stories high. He calls this massively diverse group to come around it. He says, we're going to play some some music. We're going to cue the praise band. And when that happens, everyone's going to bow down. Mm-hmm. So he does it. Um, and there's these three guys you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego from chapter one, um, who don't bow down Mm -hmm. and they're not loud about it. They're not picketing the, the statue. Um, but it's pointed out by this group that the Chaldeans, Mm -hmm. um, they show up and they say, Oh King live forever. Can we tell you something? Like, yeah, sure. Uh, Hey, there's these three people um, that are not bowing down to your statue. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Um, to which he calls them in and says, okay, guys, like I'm going to give you a second chance. Surely it's just a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't I'm, make myself clear the uh, first time. Right. <laughs> I'm going to cue the praise band again, mm-hmm. and you can bow down. And mm-hmm. if you do that, all good and well. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And so they immediately respond to him, like, don't waste your breath, mm-hmm. like, we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, don't even cue the praise bit. We're not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he gets angry with them. He heats the, the furnace seven times its normal heat. Um, and he has them bound by these mighty men. The mighty men drag them up to the furnace. And in the process, the mighty men die. Mm-hmm. They throw these three guys in. And when they look into the fire, there's four people there, not yeah. three. Um, and the king has them brought out of the fire. Not only are they not burned, they don't even smell bad, the mm-hmm. text tells us. Yeah, they don't smell like smoke. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, the king has to answer his own question. Uh, initially, he, he says, who's going to save you, you mm-hmm. know, from this fiery furnace of mine? I- insinuating that, like, there's, your God can't save you. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the text, he has to say, your God saved you. Right. He's able to save you. And... He then rewards them with higher-ranking jobs in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And um, amazing, amazing part of the text for, for a number of reasons. One, uh, it teaches us about the first and second commandments and the importance of obeying them. Yeah. Um, so they um, have no other god but God. They mm-hmm. refuse to bow down to the statue. And they also, the second commandment, there's, you know, they refused to have a graven image. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so 
in that, they again, they resist this king. Uh, they obey God instead of man, and God honors their obedience. Um, and so a couple of the points I wanted to make there is, one, um, they trusted God regardless of the earthly outcome. Mm-hmm. They actually didn't know if God was going right. to have them burn or if he was going to pull them out of the fire like he did. They mm-hmm. didn't know that. They said, if he doesn't, we're still going to obey God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a key point that for us as Christians, um, we're called to obey God and to be faithful, whether we're rescued from um, suffering or whether we actually end up suffering. Hebrews 11 uh, is really clear on both of those points. Some people were saved from fire. Some people were saved from lion's mouths. Others were sawn in two. Yeah. Others died. But God's glorified in that. And I think in this text, it's really clear that um, God was either going to be glorified through pulling them out of the fire like he did, or he was going to be glorified through them saying, God's worthy of us dying. Yeah. Um, he's worthy of that. Mm-hmm. And either way, God gets glory, and that's what they were after. And, you know, the other central key part of the text is that there's this fourth man in the fire with them. Now, some uh, think that that is... Um, pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. I, I lean in that direction. Um, Some including John Calvin. Yeah, so yeah. Mm-hmm. I lean in that direction, um, but we, we, we can't get it from this text explicitly. Mm-hmm. But regardless of whether it's the pre-incarnate Christ or someone else, the, the point stands that, the point of that is that God is with us in the midst of mm-hmm. persecution, in the midst of the flame. Yeah. Um, and... You know, that I think is, if I, if I wanted people to walk away with one thing uh, from the text, there's many things I hope they walked away with, but that would be the one thing, is that God is with us. Mm-hmm. Um, he promised that to his people in the Old Testament. He promised um, that specifically in this fulfillment of, of Isaiah. Um, and then he promises it to us in Matthew 28, that he will be with us to the end of the age. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, as Christians, we can have confidence that when we step forward in obedience, he's with us. Yeah. And, you know, then at, at the end, um, something that's been really, you know, a repetitive theme in, in the book of, of Daniel that came out again in chapter three was, who do you identify yourself with in the text? Uh, mm-hmm. And in chapter three, uh, it's so easy for us to read this and identify with these three heroes who stood up and resisted and were obedient. But when we're honest, we are so much more like Nebuchadnezzar than the three heroes. Mm -hmm. Um, We like to publish ourselves. We like to set up our own statues and say, bow down and worship this. Um, And I I think that's, you know, kind of a, a gospel moment in Daniel 3 is, if we rightly identify ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar in the text, we realize that, wow, we we deserve judgment. We actually deserve Mm -hmm. to be the the mighty men who were judged and died in the flame. Mm -hmm. Um, We we don't deserve what the the three (laughs) heroes got, and that's why we need Christ. Um, You know, and so yeah, it's, it's... Daniel 1 through 3 already has just been so packed full of uh, amazing truth, but just kind of action, and there's a repetitive theme. 
mm-hmm. of what it looks like to go against the grain, yeah. um, to be obedient to God, and to trust Him with the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as we, we think about the first three chapters, what are maybe some resources that you would recommend alongside these first three chapters? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I always try and think of something that's not a book, because uh, we recommend so many books, although it is hard for me to get away from uh, something like um, Why the Nations Rage by Jonathan Lehman. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, a lot of commentators will pair Daniel and Ezekiel together, and they note that Daniel and Ezekiel are the two exile prophets. Um, and Ezekiel is a religious figure, and so he addresses sort of religion. Daniel is a figure who ends up in the echelons of political power. And so mm-hmm. often he's talking about politics. And we live in this day where everything is politicized. And uh, in Why the Nations Rage, uh, Lehman does a fantastic job explaining the dangers of politics the good and common good of politics and how Christians can helpfully sort of navigate the political field and think about things. Yeah. Fantastic book. Mm -hmm. I think it came out in 2016. Something like Um, that. And highly recommend it. Really helpful um, resource on, on how Christians function in the public square. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I would recommend for, for chapter one, um, it's a new book that just came out. It's called Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. And um, I won't give the, the full spiel on what it's about, but um, essentially it's what it looks like to be a Christian dissident mm-hmm. uh, in a, a totalitarian world. And so th- there are themes in that book that I think are addressed throughout Daniel, but specific to chapter one, it, uh, there's a lot of parallels from that book to chapter one. Uh, A second resource that I would recommend that goes along with chapter three uh, is the book Conversion by Michael Lawrence. And you might be sitting there and thinking, what? Like, you didn't reference anything about conversion Mm -hmm. in chapter three. And that is true. That is something that got left on the cutting room floor that I'm actually going to be addressing in this weekend's sermon. Um, At the end of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar... um, does say some nice things about mm-hmm. our God. Um, and he promotes the, the three heroes to positions of prominence. Um, but he's not converted. Uh, almost all commentators point that out, that he says some nice things, but his heart isn't changed. He, and he continually talks about your God, your God, your God, mm-hmm. or their God. Um, it's not my God yet at this point. Well, it also just fits with his character. I right. mean, one of the things that is easy to miss, but you start to get is, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is also one of the central characters along with Daniel. Mm-hmm. And Nebuchadnezzar is constantly getting mad very quickly and then cooling down very quickly. He's just this very like changeable guy and right. oscillates like a fan, basically. And at the end, his hastiness in saying nice things about God it could just be viewed as, you know, being tossed to and fro by the waves just in the same way as his, like, trigger and jump to anger. Right. And Mm -hmm. and so I think that's why I would recommend this resource that uh, it is really important that we as Christians understand conversion from Mm -hmm. a scriptural standpoint and what conversion is and what conversion isn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are many things in our current culture that maybe look like conversion, Mm -hmm. um, but are not. Yeah. And so... 
um, when we miscategorize conversion, we actually can distort the gospel itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can give someone confidence in something that's not actually there, right? Um, which is, is potentially damning. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that book is fabulous. It's really short, and it, it packs a punch, and that's Conversion by Michael Lawrence. So with that, um, thanks for, for hanging with us in this mega episode of Three Sermons. Um, we will be back next week with Daniel chapter 4. And um, thanks for checking in with us. Have a good rest of the week.